Hi, it's Rick Madison, Rick and Friends. Welcome to the show. Today's a very special show. We have none other than the MLA for Kelowna Mission, and her name is Renee Merrifield. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Rick. So, Renee, you've uh, you went from private life to public life. Let's talk a little bit before we dive into the business at hand with the whole government stuff. How has it been on your family? Like, talk. Let's talk a bit about impact on, because obviously it's it's forward facing public office. Tell me a bit about that. Well, I, you know, when people ask me, how is it going being an MLA? How, like, what do you, you know, is it everything you thought it would be? I would say that the good parts are even better than I could have imagined. Being able to help people and constituents and really wrestle down some of their issues. And and that part of the job has been absolutely incredible. Uh, the worst parts of the job, the, the parts of the job that I thought I could manage, that I thought, you know, having been in the private sector and being a developer in the private sector, you know, typically it's not one that everyone just feels warm and fuzzy about necessarily. Um, and so I, I thought I was pretty pretty war war ready. Um, but, uh, but the cultural aspect of being in politics and the vicious attacks was nothing I could have ever imagined. Uh, you know, people saying things putting words into your mouth, attacking you for what you even didn't say, um, and the almost uh, paranoia that you have to ascribe to everything that you do and say and um, and how it could be used as a weapon against you is just phenomenal. And um, in terms of the impact on my family, that's been uh, almost heartbreaking for me uh, just to watch um, my kids who are all adults uh, they want to stand up they want to defend uh, they'll text me ma you know you need to like you need to fight back and I'm like no 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 no. we're in the doghouse just weather the storm just watch the storm outside um, but they watch it they see what people say about me and um, and they want to defend they want to say no that's not my you know it's not my ma you don't know her she's she's so different than that so um, it's it's hard on them and uh, and it definitely it definitely is a cautionary tale for those that want to go into public life because it's it's difficult. And I think it's uh, elevated in the last few years, especially with social media and keyboard warriors and and people that just have this uh, this feeling that yeah, I'm you threw your hat into the ring, which I have a ton of respect for. Anyone who chooses the public life to try and make a difference is is really opening themselves up, and it's. It's tough. Like, I mean, I've had a lot of candidates for municipal politics on the program, and they all say the same thing. Like, that's the part of the job that they weren't really set up for because it's so, it's ongoing and it's like, Every day you wake up and go, what, what else? Yeah. And, and the, uh, the social, uh, social media aspect also provides anonymity where we used to not have it, right? If an article was written in a newspaper back 50 years ago, there was a lot of journalistic uh, uh, accountability that was uh, that was offered and that was ne- necessary to actually be a journalist and to have something published and publications treated it with the level of respect that was due. Social media is a whole different beast. You can have anonymous Twitterers from you know literally anywhere in the world coming after you, and it can be e- easily manipulated. And I mean, if there's a cautionary tale here, look at what's happening with some of our elections and. Some of how not only donations, but also social media chat lines and mm-hmm. and different information was being disseminated largely unchecked. So it is difficult. Now is, you know, 
the government coming in and, and regulating it, the answer, no, it is most definitely not. I think it's much, it has to be much more of a democratic answer than that. And that is that I think the companies need to require disclosure of who you are, need to make bots way less uh, available, make secret accounts way less available, and make sure that people are who they say they are and that they are revealed as who they are um, and can be held accountable for the words that they say, whether it's online or not. Because it sounds like we really do have to strike a balance between democracy, as you said, and and having some sort of controls. Because obviously, now that we know it's empirical evidence that we have tampering going on with our elections, we really do have to be mindful. But there's going to be a delicate balance because you can't have too much oversight and you can't have... Well, you still need to have this freedom of election. Absolutely. And we're weighing in into areas outside of my jurisdiction right now, Rick. So I'm just going to caution. Um, uh, you'll have to get other uh, other legislators in here to have that conversation. But I agree. I think that democracy and there has to be a democratic uh, uh, rationale and, and solution that comes in to fill this gap. And... I don't want to, I know that you're media, so I don't want to blame media, but there is this, like, uh, the only reason that I'm on Twitter, the only reason I am, because my voters are not on Twitter, my voters are in Kelowna Mission, Mm -hmm. but the only reason that I'm on Twitter is because that's where the media is. They are the ones that are watching these storms going on. They are the ones that create the headlines that are then used to give validity to what some of these untruths that are being smeared about are actually... um, are, yeah, are, are giving credibility to it. And I think that that's the dangerous part too, is that when it starts tipping into, you know, into mainline, like someone said, well, stop reading your comments, Renee. And I'm like, I don't, I don't even read them. <laughs> it, you know, it's largely, uh, you know, others that are coming in and, and then, you know, taking a headline and making it something that it, it never really was. So, But it, do you find your constituents are starting to wake up to the fact that there's uh, such a thing as state-funded media? Like that there's an actual line between payment to meet, oh, well, not payment, that's a, uh, grants, let's say, <laughs> yeah. uh, prop-ups, whatever you want to call it. But there's money being given to media from the federal government that is supposed to prop up the media during COVID and everything else. Are they waking up to the fact that that is, you know, actually being perpetuated? I don't know about uh, how much they're waking up to. I, 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 I would say that um, the federal parties right now are drawing more attention to it, which I think is a necessary education that we're having is like, hey, do we ever draw the line between A and B? I wouldn't even say it's necessarily just in media, but in all aspects, like where they're starting to even question, okay, this study, are there conflicts of interest? Are there, you know, are there ties to those companies that would benefit from this information? So I think that there's more of an eyes wide open tie to um, the the profits that are driven by whatever is happening. Uh, and and I, I do think that there is more skepticism when it comes to that. Uh, is it a healthy skepticism? Sometimes it's tipped over and it becomes just uh, an absolute, you know, belief that nothing is is as it as it appears. Um, but I do think that there needed to be a correction in just assuming that everything that comes out of province of BC or 
you know, the federal government of Canada would not be somehow tainted Mm -hmm. by agenda. And I think that COVID was a big eye opener for a lot of people in, wow, there is a big agenda out here. We could go and down that rabbit and hole. And we will not. <laughs> and we will not. We could. Um, I, I want to talk a bit about uh, your portfolio um, and and really going into that position. Did you have an idea or a thought process of how much change? Because, I mean, going to public office, we have an idea of, of things we want to engineer, we want to influence, we want to change. Has it, has it been that way for you? Like, have you been able to... F- fundamentally feel like you're moving the needle opposition is a strange position to be in um so what i would say is that i have had the ability and the privilege to draw attention to where we need change uh but i do not have confidence in any way shape or form that we're moving in the right direction uh you know look no further than our our downtown um, you know, for, for those of us that have worked and played and at certain times of our life lived downtown and in that downtown core, um, the last six years have been horrific. And one of the reasons that I jumped into politics was because I have such a passion for the mental health aspect of our community. And it has been so sorely um, mistreated and uh, and we are suffering the results of ideology that is on the wrong trajectory uh, we're starting to see some of the some of the um, voices in the US starting to sound the alarm bell I haven't seen that as much in Canada but you know even while I was serving on the interior health authority board um, you know we were we were pursuing what mental health and substance use uh, solutions were out there it was the first time I came into contact with dr. Joao Galau from uh, Portugal and the Portugal model and at that time it was very new and everyone was sort of watching with bated breath are they going to succeed or not um, and anyone who is watching now can can unequivocally say that they have succeeded and succeeded at a fraction of the dollars that we are spending on a daily basis. So, you know, would I would consider us being on a different path and a different um, path from that, you know, homelessness to wholeness and to healing um, as being that trajectory change. Uh, you know, I, I got into politics because I love health. And I, I, you know, I've been sounding the alarm bell about where our healthcare system is going, about the trajectory that we're on, uh, the implosion that is happening, the implosion culturally, our nursing staff are, are, are leaving, you know, we've got 30% nursing staff at any given time, sometimes in in different wards of the hospital. And you look at what needs to change, and and it is a system-wide change that needs to transpire. I can't do that in opposition, but I can certainly give uh, Minister Dix, uh, you know, a a good, um, you know, thrashing when it comes to asking questions in question period or, you know, giving speeches in the House. So, you know, is that something that I will continue sounding the alarm bell on? Yes. Do I want to see it change? Yes. Can I change it yet? No. But I'm going to I'm gonna keep trying. And I've seen some of the things that, uh, you know, that we started while I was the, the shadow minister for health and now as Shirley Bond has, has maintained the shadow uh, ministry, uh, you know, 
she is making a difference. She is calling, like, we need more GPs. And, you know, we got um, Minister Dix to actually admit the statistic of, you know, a, a million British Columbians without a, without a, do- a family doctor. So we are seeing changes take place. And I, you know, I'll take that victory lap that I don't think we would be where we are today with a new um, fee structure and payment model without us as opposition sounding that alarm bell. So, so things are changing. Are they changing where I'd, want, I'd like them to be? No, not yet. But, but hopefully through this season in opposition, and I call it a season because I think the season will change. Um, I think, we, you know, I think we are making a difference, but not the same difference that we could make if we were in government. So the opposition is kind of an interesting thing because you have to be obviously keeping them accountable. And, you know, uh, when I went to my business community and I said, hey, what, what questions can I pose to Renee? Some of them said, well, we would like it if there was more proactive plans put together versus just being critical. But that's the opposition's job is really to be critical. But, you know, the unveiling of the plan to deal with homelessness, to deal with treatment, addiction, opioid crisis, that was um, interesting to me because sometimes... I. And I don't know this, but is it is it best to show your cards to say, here's what we would do? And then the, you know, the governing party says, wow, that there's actually some merit to this proposal. We should try adopting that to steal some of the thunder in the platform. Or, or is that just too much of a pride issue where they go, if we adopt any of these policies, we are going to be seen as uh, copycats and, and, you know, sit flattery and all that kind of sincerest form. Is that... Is that true? Like when you unveil a plan and it's proactive and it's saying, if we ruled, here's what we do tomorrow. Is there, is there, is it problematic to show your cards? Uh, I would say that um, political thought would say yes. Politicians who care wouldn't care. And I think what you saw in um, our leaders position and really coming out with a comprehensive plan um, was take it, steal it, use it. Um, we don't care. We're going to do it when we get into government and we can do more. But the, the need is so critical that we didn't care if, if the NDP took it and stole it. it you know, in fact, in my, in my speech in my, if, to the budget, I actually said, we gave you the plan. Um, and yet they're going to spend a billion dollars this year, only 164 million of that is going to go to any capital that will actually build the complex care that we desperately need. When the plan that we released was almost reversed, the capital expenditure was going to be significant at the beginning, but then would actually provide that really high needs intensive housing um, with full wraparound supports that the Portugal model has made so successful um, in terms of rehabilitation and reintegration into society, into community, into um, that wholeness piece. We were, we would have gladly had them take it. And instead they're, you know, they're dumping hundreds of millions of dollars into, you know, publicly funded addictive drugs Mm -hmm. rather than actually the solutions that would change the trajectory of where we're going. So 
I think you're going to see more of that to come because ultimately, if they take all of our good ideas and implement them, that's okay. There are so many more behind that. And the one thing I would say about the NDP that I've learned in the, you know, in the 90s when they were in, in government and I actually started becoming more politically active and then, you know, having watched them for the last two and a half years very intently is that they don't govern well. They have some really great ideas sometimes and some good hearts. They're not bad people. They're just absolutely incapable of getting things off the ground and of seeing things come to fruition. I love that you went to your business community and asked them, what, you know, what would you like to see? And they're like, plans, we need plans. <laughs> and one of the biggest frustrations that I have right now with being where, you know, where we're at in government is that there are no plans. Mm -hmm. You know, we have been hammering Adrian Dix for the last six years on where is your cancer plan? I know he got the cancer plan back in 2017, 2018. Why? Because we were working on it back in 2015, 2016. So I know that there is one that existed, but he was for six years, didn't come out with it. And now, you know, has this one-time funding that, you know, is EB's spending spree. But um, then he's going to like basically trickle it out in $70 million increments for the next three years. That's anemic. When you look at what the need is in cancer, when you look at our wait times, the worst in Canada, it's absolutely ridiculous. So I would agree with the business community. We're all frustrated that there is no planning. The great part about BC liberals is that we are planners. <laughs> and, you know, it was funny. We were looking at the Parks Department getting ready for um, environmental estimates coming up. And it was like, wow, the last strategic plans that were done were 2017. <laughs> really? That's the last one that's done. Um, BC uh, Emergency Health Services, uh, our ambulance services, last strategic plan that was done was 2015 and it lapsed in 2018. We're, we're talking, we have no strategic plans left. Like, you know, just yesterday or the day before the, the government, uh, the NDP government announced that now they're going to look at BC Hydro planning and try and get a clean energy renewables plan together. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. Like we've been sounding the alarm bell, asking the question and Premier Clark, to her credit, knew that we were not going to have enough electricity to actually meet some of our clean energy goals. She put forward, much to her detriment, Site C. Mm -hmm. And now, now our experts are saying, well, you're going to need Site C and D and E and F. And, and, and suddenly the NDP have an epiphany, epiphany over the last two days. And they're like, yes, I think we will need to do some planning. Like that is the incompetence that, will, that drives me crazy. And to your point, you know, uh, our leader is making sure that we're not just opposition throwing, you know, hand grenades over the over the, you know, the, the carpet, the red carpet. We're actually government in waiting and we're going to come up with so many plans over the course of this next however long we have until the next election. As E.B. would say, it's not going to happen until October 2024, um, but we're going to be ready. Like mm -hmm. we're not waiting. And, you know, you want to see action. Hold on to your hats and sunglasses for uh, Premier Falcon to arrive, because when the Falcon lands, uh, honestly, it's going to be a whole different hundred oh, that's days. A good one. That's a good one. <laughs> so I'll, I'll make sure he uses it. No, no. So and, and you need a historical perspective sometimes in order to understand the future. And I think when we look back to how the the NDP was able to get into power, you know, there was some some might say there was a reason why the 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 voting public voted in NDP. Have we learned from those from those ideas or ideologies? Well, I think what we've seen is them come to fruition. 
you know, our homeless population absolutely exploding is because of NDP ideology. Our prolific offenders is because of NDP ideology. You know, our healthcare system crisis and implosion is because of NDP ideology. You know, uh, where we're at on our environmental goals and the fact that we have not met them, but we will not meet 2030, we will not, not meet 2050, is because of their ideology. Hmm. Um, so uh, what we are seeing is largely the trajectory that uh, the NDP have pointed us at has had time to mature. It's had time to show its results, and the results are horrible. And, and is there a concentration of... of NDP, I guess, thought and and uh, voters in Vancouver, like on the mainland, is that is that where they really have their their power base? I guess. Well, it's it's very telling that in the last election, um, Horgan didn't even come out anywhere outside of the Lower Mainland. Mm. I think that's telling. Um, you know, they hold very few seats outside of the Lower Mainland uh, and the island, um, and we'll see where that all ends up. Uh, you know, Prince George uh, yesterday posted their their new employment rates. I mean, their unemployment rate is at 6.6%. They've lost jobs, like exorbitant amount of jobs. So, um, you know, we're looking at their policies on our natural resource sector. It was mentioned one time in the throne speech. Uh, you know, they've decimated forestry without a plan forward, mm-hmm. without a way forward, you know, just literally taking swaths of it and, and telling our resource sector to go away. And what people don't realize is that that, you know, you look at our GDP, you look at what actually makes British Columbians money. Those are all natural resources. We don't have a single thing in the top 10 that is not a natural resource. So for us to to blindly follow the NDP way of like, let's just, you know, focus on the lower mainland. It's like, that's not where the money happens. That's not where we're actually seeing um, growth transpire. But what we are seeing and where I think they'll start waking up is they have horrific housing prices, as do we all, but especially in the lower mainland, they cannot Mm -hmm. find housing. You know, they have some of the um, biggest congestion in all of North America, most wait times while they are sitting on their on their highway and freeway system. So, you know, their their cost of living is exorbitant. You know, they are not seeing the school promises come to fruition. You know, the promise to Surrey, we're going to eradicate all of the portables. There will be none in the next four years. There are 300 they have gone up by 10% under this NDP government. You know, their new hospital that they have promised and promised and promised and still has yet to have a shovel in that ground, you know, it's now being revealed that it's not even going to have a maternity ward. Surrey, the city of Surrey, think about that population, is going to have one maternity ward. That's like, that's that's obscene. It's just, it's, it's a borderline ridiculous. So um, there, you know, the expansion that the BC Liberals did to Surrey Memorial Hospital is a greater per capita expansion than what this brand new hospital will be for the population of Surrey. So you, you start thinking about that, like nobody feels like they're getting better service. Nobody feels like they're getting, you know, a, a better cost of living. Nobody feels like they're getting better health care or, you know, mm-hmm. and everyone is suffering the results of our, of our mental health strategy. So I would say that people are starting to wake up and especially in the lower mainland and demanding different and better. I think it's going to be important uh, going forward for the BC Liberals if they are going to take government in provincially. There has to be, and, and I don't know, again, I don't know how to do this, but I think 
if there's going to be an environmental plan which balances against the resource sector, because I think a lot of people, especially in the mainland and on the island, they think, okay, well, if, if we promote or try to even turn on the taps for forestry or mining or anything, that's going to create a, a massive impact on the environment. But not necessarily so, and I, I don't know how you would get that across and still strike the balance, because that's part of the platform for the NDP, is we look at, we're the stewards of the environment, but a lot of their policies are actually having the opposite effect. Well, the trajectory that we are on is um, is one that our emissions have continually increased every single year, year over year, under the NDB government. The only four years that our emissions have decreased year over year over year was under the BC Liberal government. Um, when I have talked and I have met with almost every environmental group across BC, when I've met with them, they talk about the Gordon Campbell era. Gordon was ahead of his time. He was a pioneer. He was a, a learner. And he came forward with some very, very dramatic plans. Those dramatic plans, I think, ultimately cost him his leadership because I think he was a little bit ahead of his time. Mm-hmm. But in terms of environmental policy, he did understand where we needed to go. I think that Premier Clark actually continued that in that she knew that in order for us to have prosperity, we needed to have our, re- our resource sector fully firing on all cylinders. But that firing needed to be done on clean energy. And so her whole vision with Site C and moving that forward, I think was part of that vision in terms of clean energy. Where we are at right now is scary. It's scary from an environmental perspective because the NDP have said, well, we're not going to approve plans for any resource sector um, projects that are not net zero. But the only way they get to net zero is through clean energy, which the government has to provide. So And, I mean, this week they've acknowledged we haven't provided that, nor do we have a plan for how we're going to provide that. So you're right. We are in this little bit of a catch-22. And I think the scariest part is not necessarily just for BC, but for the rest of the globe. Mm -hmm. Because the rest of the globe does need to transition from coal to LNG. LNG is a transition uh, fuel and a transition energy source. Um, We do need BC's innovation and research and technology and advances. But right now we have zero connections between our researchers and our and our industry. We we have like zero. Like it, it has not even been thought of by the NDP. So you know when I look at what we could do for the globe, mm-hmm. I'm very concerned that we are not taking our place and our position in really the hope that um, that we need in BC and the hope that we need in the rest of the world for a clean tomorrow. Do you think, do you get the impression from uh, the NDP that they are mindful, that they, they see, they have a self-awareness of what their report card looks like? environmentally no, not even close um you know i they, i don't know how you can deny statistics like that for me is you know we um we heard the minister uh of, of environment last year tout well you know 2020s numbers are going to be better because we all we all of a sudden had all of our clean bc policies starting to take uh take ground and take you know have have some impact and in 2020, the numbers came out because um, they're always two years delayed. So that's why I'm talking about them in 2022. Um, and uh, 2023 will have 2021's numbers. But BC only went down by 4%. Mm. The rest of Canada 
went down by 9%. BC absolutely was a laggard in in how we were, in what our emissions were. Then you couple the fact that we don't have to calculate for wildfires, but we've had three of the worst wildfire seasons in the last five years. Mm -hmm. Those wildfires each are three years of all of BC's emissions. Mm -hmm. So you look at, you know, 218 megatons of CO2 being released into our environment. Yeah, we feel it. We know it. Here in the Okanagan, oh my goodness, we walk out the smoke, the our lungs, our eyes, like how we, you know, you can smell um, the carbon, as it were, the smoke. And so it, it's like, it's horrific to think that they wouldn't know um, just how bad it is. And, you know, they're, the only way that they're even um, coming c- close to where we should be, but not even making it, is because we're importing, we're importing natural gas. Um, that's not a success story, you know, and, and again, that just is, yes, our global system, we count the emissions in the area of production, not the area of consumption. So it's, but it's a shell game. If we're using it, it means that, you know, we're using it and, uh, and we're not meeting our targets and nor will we. So today, uh, I have the pleasure of speaking again with, uh, Rick Pasuto, who is forestry consultant and, and he was on the show talking about, uh, mitigation suppression for for fires, forest fires, and he says there's actually you know uh, you know a, a very thoughtful plan that could be employed to to deal with that. But he said it it seems to be during the the NDP government especially of just basically putting money and resources towards fighting the fires versus proactively preventing them. And he said. A lot can be done with, uh, especially with interface fires, because he said, you know, obviously those are a very big deal, but also, you know, a systematic plan that doesn't seem to be followed in any kind of manner. And he says it's just public outcry when they push money towards any kind of mitigation, because he said it, it, it's such a big deal, especially in the Okanagan, where obviously my, my house burned down in 2003, but it's one of those things where we have to look at and and for me i still have ptsd when it comes to forest fires it still seems to be a you know that's an environmental impact like that for me is the biggest environmental impact is watching a forest burn and it's killing me that that to me is the one thing that would make me want to run for public office is pushing that agenda. Oh, and it's huge. And Rick is absolutely 100% correct. There are so many things that we could be doing. And we put this little $130 million bucket towards, you know, BC wildfire services to do some mitigation. And we put a billion dollars towards the actual fighting of a fire. How that makes any sense is beyond me, except that they get to pull it from a different bucket. So it's that short-sightedness of not prioritizing our environment in the correct way. It's whether it's wildfire or whether it's the floods or whether it's the, you know, the the rebuild of the roads that we did. In in every case, it's like that that repair bucket is so much more acceptable by the public. Oh, we need we need a road that's going to get us from here to Vancouver. So of course you can spend the money. But when it's, well, we need to make these roads flood proof, that's a harder sell somehow. I mean, you look at the Abbotsford Sumas Prairies and 
they had had eight different reports over the course of 12 years saying, this is what we have to do in order to avoid a flood. And it was in the billions of dollars that it was going to take. Well, now we're spending the billions of dollars, but it's all in repair rather in than in actual prevention or in mitigation work and building that resiliency. So you're right, the three buckets, reducing our emissions, mitigating from climate change and then repairing. Right now, the NDP love to repair things. They're not so good at the mitigation and horrible at the actual emissions. In fact, their Clean BC plan cannot tie any of their spending to an actual emissions reduction. They, they have zero outcome-based spend on those emissions, which is baffling to me. So we're literally spilling, spending billions of dollars, but we're not actually sure how it's going to work. Okay, we're going to be back in a minute with more Renee Berryfield. We're having some fun here today. <laughs> so serious, Rick. We need to lighten it up. Um, let's talk about time change. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, let's talk about our sponsors, D6 Print Studio, large format printers. They can do anything, well, large because they're large format. Uh, you need an engagement ring, don't you, for this for this summer? You know, maybe maybe on a mountaintop somewhere you could uh, you could say, hey, is this the time? Get down on one knee, Pereira.com. That's where you get an engagement ring. Uh, solitaire ring, maybe. Something from Takori. Who knows? Uh, back in a bit with more Renee. Okay. Well, uh, the second half of our little show here, and uh, it's it's been a hoot. Um, the the one thing I want to talk about, Renee, is, is about the fact that we have... Uh, you know, I, I drive down this street. I've I've talked about this before, um, but hire back our heroes, and it seems to be a vendetta. <laughs> I, I don't know uh, with Mr. Adrian Dix that it seems like he will not. They do contract workers to fill the void, to fill the shortages, but they actually have not hired back some of these uh, frontline healthcare workers. What is your stance on that? Back um, in March of last year, our uh, then new leader, Kevin Falcon, uh, demanded the science. He said, we want to see the science behind uh, the vaccine mandate required for healthcare workers. Uh, none was provided, which um, was disappointing. And back starting in June, we uh, started calling for all of the workers to be hired back and for the vaccine mandate to be dropped. We have stayed steady on that course, um, consistently asking both in public and in private when all workers will be brought back. And we included the BC um, provincial workers as well as our healthcare workers. Um, and literally, the healthcare workers are the only ones left. And I wouldn't go so far as to say vendetta, but I would say it's based on faulty ideology and um, they absolutely unequivocally should be brought back and should be rehired. And uh, I'm having um, very prominent you know, specialists and physicians reaching out who are fully vaccinated, who are and have been within the system saying, why are we still having this vaccine mandate? And why can we not bring back the workers? Um, we are we need them so badly. And you look at, you know, the interior was hard hit. The, the north was very hard hit. They still have 30 percent vacancy of all of their nursing positions in the north. You know, we're not quite as bad here, but we've got 5,700 vacant nursing positions across BC right now. Is it that high? It is exorbitant. And that 
for me is like we are willing to have you know a worker come from uh, you know foreign places and you know help our nursing staff but we're not actually you know the ones on your street um, have yet to be hired back it makes no sense to me and, and it you know I, I heard a story about an oncologist on the island who was um, basically forced out because he he refused the vaccine and uh, oncologists from what I understand are really tough to get <laughs> So I think there was one or two that left the island. I don't know if they've been replaced, but I heard about it through a friend of mine who said that, uh, yeah, like this leaves a massive void because both oncologists had, you know, a big backlog of, of patients. And they said, you know, to get those specialists back was going to take a tremendous amount of recruitment. And I think it's those stories and because I have friends suffering from cancer and it still it pains me that they can't get that treatment and care. And, and at some point, there's got to be a breaking point, you would think. Yeah. And I, you know, I don't know that particular story. Um, you know, I've heard, I've heard many stories and, uh, you know, we within our party were very careful and, you know, and throughout the pandemic, we really tried to follow, um, you know, the best science and follow our, our provincial health orders and our provincial health officer. And, you know, we did so, um, and, and, did so very, um, I would say, willingly because we just didn't understand what was going on and, and what was needed, et cetera, et cetera. And I think what we saw is like even starting last year is like, show us what your what the science is now that you're watching. And even when we asked in question period, the rebuttal that we received from Dix was that, well, you know, we take better care of our patients. And I'm like, then the rest of the world? I mean, we're talking California is removing all mandates as of April 1st. Washington, all mandates of, as of April 1st. You know, the rest of Canada, all mandates are gone. Like, mm -hmm. so w why are we the outlier? Surely it can't be that we're just taking better care of our patients. Mm -hmm. So um, you're right. It doesn't make sense when we have patients that are suffering. And, you know, I think that there could be um, safety protocols. And I think there are other safety protocols that are much better, like don't come to work sick, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> that could be employed um, in a much more um, usable fashion than what we're enduring today. And, um, you know, at some point we, you know, we as a society have to ask for that to happen. And hopefully the voice will continue. Um, we're going to be on that charge until everyone is hired back. Is there any kind of feeling uh, through legislature of when potentially uh, an election might maybe be called? I mean, you mentioned the fall, uh, David Eby talking about the fall, but is, is there any kind of thought that we can somehow gravitate towards that there's going to be an election soon? October 2024 is the outside date. That's when he has to call the election by. Um, you know, there was speculation, pretty rampant speculation that it was going to be this spring, uh, especially with his 100 days of spending uh, and um, and frivolously spending, wild spending, I don't even know, chaotic spending, spending that the ministers couldn't even defend when asked about it in, in, in supplementary estimates. So it, very erratic, very chaotic, but, um, but then the budget came out and that is not an election budget. It just, it, it was like more of the same, nothing really bold, nothing changing a trajectory. You know, they, they always talk about this is like, you know, the most spending that's ever been done on the worst results that's ever been had. Like, I don't even know how you like, how you, the tagline just doesn't, just doesn't read well. So that, then it kind of, you know, I, I would think, 
probably not this spring. Um, and, you know, he keeps going on record saying there will not be an election until October of 2024. Um, so do I believe him? Not any more than I believe Torgan, <laughs> who said we are not going to have an election before the you know appropriate election date until you know he said that the day before he he dropped the writ. So I don't I, it doesn't make sense to me, and I don't believe anything. And we're going to be ready. So um, we're going to be ready with with our candidates. We're going to be ready with our policy. We're going to be ready with our platform, and um, and we're going to be ready with the public. We are going to earn back that trust and that belief that says these are. These are the people that can take us forward. These are the people that we believe um, uh, care about us. How long is this name change going to take? <laughs> um, well, we already know what the name, you know, is going to be. Ultimately, I think we're, you know, we were looking at the timing of the rebrand. And as you know, in business, it takes a huge amount mm -hmm. of effort. It's a lot of stationary. And yeah, well, station and not just stationary, <laughs> but but even within the public and, and our, you know, uh, you don't want to do it in a time in a time that, you know, could you know, could be sideswiped with an election. So I would hope sooner than later. That's my hope. Um, but right now we're in session, so we'll see where things go. I would think just being in session actually maybe perhaps accelerates this whole thought process. Maybe? No? <laughs> I'm gonna, you know what? I'm going to tell them that you said. <laughs> <laughs> but Rick says we should do it sooner than later. <laughs> yeah, and, and Rick who? No. <laughs> no, you, you're right. People call us BC United. You yeah. know, like I, I was doing a media interview uh, with Global and they were like, is it BC United or BC Liberal? And mm -hmm. I was like, BC Liberal still. Like, so already it's out there. Already people are getting, you know, comfortable with it. I am like, I am like riffing on it. Like I'm like, you know, United for better healthcare, United for mental health. Yeah. United. Like there is so much that we could do with it. And in terms of like the whole soccer analogy, I hope we come out with some swag, yeah. some great like soccer jerseys. I've got my newfound love of, of of all things soccer and well, uh, Whitecaps yeah. did okay. I know. You know. Well, and I'm also like I've been to some Portugal games and oh, it's wild out there in Europe. So my my next one, I want to get to a game in in the UK as well. But I would imagine you do have to do that rebrand rather quickly before the election, so that everyone has no confusion yep. when it comes to that. And um, we've got two by elections: Melanie Mark and John Horgan. Um, mm. We've got their two seats. So you know, again. Do you do it before the by-election? Do you do it? Right. It'll be, it, yeah, and that's for, you know, way smarter heads like yours than, than mine in terms of. Well, I, I don't know why you'd want to distance yourself from the liberal name. I, I have no idea why you would want to do that. <laughs> Um, <laughs> it, the, you know what? I mean, we are a big tent party. And and part of it is that we want somewhere where everyone can fit. And, mm -hmm. you know, someone asked me, well, are you a federal liberal or a federal conservative? I'm mean, like, you don't know me very well, but that's okay. I, I would say, like, my heart is on my left, but my pocketbook is so on my right. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, and, and, and I, I, I am someone who really cares about those that are in need. And I want to be able to, you know, to facilitate um you know, positive results mm -hmm. uh, in, in for them and to help them. Um, but we need to be 
absolutely focused on our, on our economy and in firing it on all cylinders. And in order to do that, you have to be fiscally conservative. And that right now is not what's happening with our federal liberals, uh, or sorry, with our um, uh, uh, provincial NDP. We've got, you know, they've basically taken an increased spending by 57% over mm-hmm. the course of six years. They've doubled our deficit. So, you know, we had 50, it took us 104 years to get to about 50 billion, and it took them six years to get to 100 billion. So when you say that, which saddens me, of course, but when you say that, how long do you disentangle uh, an economy, healthcare, homelessness, uh, resource sector? Like, I mean, you know, you're, you're basically given a little bit of a dog's breakfast if you win government, if, you know, when, when the election gets called. And, and, and like I said, if you win enough seats, because there's, it is really right now, I think it's 57 to 27. I, I can't remember, but yeah. it's it's around there. And it seems to me like that's that's a pretty big disentanglement of a, of a lot of different sectors. Like, is there, has there been a discussion around, here's how long this is going to take, a year, two years? Because, I mean, people are impatient, especially with a new government coming in, hopefully, maybe. Mm-hmm. Like, is there any kind of timeline that that we think about? I, I mean, I, I I can't remember if I did ask Mr. Falcon that question, but I don't remember what his answer was. What I would say is that uh, back in the '90s, uh, for those of us that were here, it was it was horrific times. And I had moved uh, from Alberta to BC, and people thought I was crazy. I was moving from one of the hottest economies in all of Canada to one that had no jobs, uh, and that was namely BC. There was a, a huge outward migration from BC to Alberta at the time, and I was kind of like going against the tide. Um, I was going for a one-year stopover. It turned into 26 years later. Here I am. Um, but what I would say is that in you know I got it. I got involved in politics to change that tide to change how we were, where we were economically at the time. I cannot believe how fast it changed. You, you know, the BC Liberals got in in 2001 with a 75 to to two um, in terms of seat holdings. Mm -hmm. They moved so fast and gave this confidence to investment and to um, industry and to uh, where we were going. And we were ready and, you know, we still have some of our MLAs from back in those years, and they'll say we had plans already in place, similar to what we did with our Better as Possible mental health plan. We're ready. We're ready. We already know which sites we would use to build the facilities. Why? Because that's what you need to be in order to move fast and be a government in waiting. With the natural resource sector, we know that those decisions take time. We're lucky that some of those are still in the funnel, <laughs> that some of them are still waiting for decisions to be made. So we, I think we can move very quickly. I think we're going to rely on a lot of way smarter minds than ours uh, to actually get us there. Uh, but I do think think that it would be a a quick turn and a pretty dramatic one considering how far we are down this path. I guess it it does uh, help you that, yeah, the NDP is very good at hiring people. Um, (laughs) Hiring a lot of people. 100,000. 130,000. That's amazing to me. 
Yeah. Anyway, we could go on and on, but I'm, I'm not going to do that. Um, I, I do want to thank our listeners for listening to this podcast, being invested in the issues, and, uh, and, and just being an advocate for knowing more. And uh, I do appreciate that. Thanks again to our wonderful MLA, Renee Merrifield, for spending the time with us. Thanks so much for coming in. Oh, thank you, Rick. I really appreciate how you draw attention to great issues. It's, uh, it's been fun to be here this morning. Thank you. Let's talk soon.